want to know and find out where the weak points are in your system, you have to ask the people who are least successful in it or most marginalized because they will be able to tell you every single way that the system is wrong. Welcome to the Modern Learners Podcast. I'm Will Richardson, co-founder of the Modern Learners Community and Change School, as well as an author, speaker, leadership coach, and parent of two pretty amazing kids. Every week I talk to leading educational thinkers and doers, and we do a deep dive into some of the challenges and opportunities that face educators today, and I offer some practical steps for what you can do right now to make sure your students thrive in the complex, fast-changing future they'll live in. Now, this is the fourth and final episode in our exploration of the theme community this month, and I just want to say from the start that this conversation you're about to hear on community and culture has been one that I've been struggling with recently. There are many challenges and tensions that we face in schools and education today, but I'm not sure any of them are more complex than the ones surrounding equity in terms of race and gender. And there's no question that white male privilege is finally being challenged in many healthy ways. And around the world, I think what we're seeing is perhaps the last gasp for white males attempting to maintain power over the narrative of society. And that is long overdue, but we have a very, very long way to go. Now, personally for me, that struggle hit home about a month ago. Um, I was at a workshop in Pittsburgh put on by Education Reimagine, which is a nonprofit group out of Washington, D.C., and it was, in a word, transformative for me, and I don't use that word lightly. Uh, We were discussing the ways that we could bring the idea of learner-centered education to schools as a way of changing the experience of school for the better for all kids, but As we were talking about that, a number of people of color in attendance gave impassioned reflections on what it was like to live in a culture and a society that is still dominated by primarily white narratives. They argued with great emotion and great frankness that these issues of equity reached well beyond schools and classrooms and that there was still little widespread understanding of the injustices and fears that people of color still carry with them today. It left me deeply moved and to some extent speechless, and that's why I was almost happy when a white education secretary of a central United States state stood up at the end and she said, I don't know what to do, because she literally took the words out of my mouth. So since that weekend, I've been reflecting pretty deeply on my own biases, on the societal narratives that are so rooted in white history and on what I can do to not be complicit in perpetuating them. I know I'm at the start of a long journey, one that for me begins with things like reading the book White Fragility, and it also begins with bringing more voices of people of color and sexual orientation into my networks and my interactions, which leads me to today's interview with Trisha Ibarbia. Trisha is in her 19th year teaching high school English, and she's the department chair at Conestoga High School in Berwyn, Pennsylvania, located outside of Philly. She was a Heinemann Fellow from 2016 to 2018, where she wrote regularly about creating an inclusive literacy classroom, and she's developed into a leading voice around anti-bias, anti-racist pedagogy. She co-founded the hashtag DisruptTexts conversation on Twitter and elsewhere, and she's the co-director of the Pennsylvania Writing and Literature Project. 
So in this interview, Trisha and I talk about the difficulties of creating cultures of community, the many biases that educators bring to their work, and some of the ways in which we can begin to build more understanding of race and gender issues into our personal lives and into our classrooms. I really learned a lot from this conversation, and I hope you will as well. So real fast, just before we get to that discussion, I want to remind you that I'm going to be co-leading five new modern learners labs up and down the East Coast in October, November, and January. And the best part of that, for me at least, is that I'll be doing that with two really special educators, my friends, Dr. Gary Steger and Homa Tavanger. These two-day events will both challenge you and inspire you, and I think they're great opportunities to do professional learning for yourself, but also join a global PLC of others who are grappling with the most important topics in education today. So do me a favor and just check out modernlearners.com labs real fast to see what we're up to and think about joining us. I promise you, you'll find a time and money well spent. And finally, as always, at the end of my conversation with Trisha, I'll be back with three things that you can do right now to move your schools and classrooms to a deeper sense of community. Don't forget, if you like what you hear today, please head on over to iTunes, give us some love via review and a rating. And I hope you'll continue the conversation around community with us in our Modern Learners community at modernlearners.community. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. So Trisha, thanks so much for taking the time to come and have a conversation about this. I'd like to start with a quote actually from Bell Hooks that you posted on Twitter last month. And the quote goes, to build community requires vigilant awareness of the work we must continually do to undermine all the socialization that leads us to behave in ways that perpetuate domination. And I was wondering, can you just talk a little bit about why that quote resonates with you, um, you know, in general, but also in the context of what happens in schools? Sure. Um, thanks, Will. I think that Bell Hook's work is really, first, just transformational in general. But I think that quote especially stood out to me because I think so much of what happens in school is unsaid. And so much of what students learn in school is that hidden curriculum, right? And so when we're thinking about building community, the thing that I always think about is whose community? Community is, consists of, and this is just one definition, but if a community consists of people who um, come together around shared values, shared practices, and so on, who's determining those things? And so I, one of the things that I have noticed about school is that there are values that are very much spoken into existence, if you will, through our practices, even if they're not verbally spoken, in other words. And so I think when we're not aware of that and we're not conscious of those socializing factors, we, by default, duplicate or replicate the things that we were socialized into, right? And I think for teachers, this is especially important to consider because I often think about how teachers, um, to some extent, we're this sort of, we're sort of people who did well or perhaps got something out of the system and therefore we were in it to maybe change it or perhaps we were students like I was, and I'll speak for myself, I was very successful in school. And a lot of that was even subconsciously buying into the values and the system that school um, presented to me. And so I teach or I taught, my default was how I was when I was in school, right? And the things that I thought were correct or right were the things that I felt 
were correct or right through my lens and my experience. So I think that when we're not, and we hear this all the time, right? From teachers who say, when I was back in school, so right. um, well, this kids weren't like this back then, or when I was school, I would just do this. And I think that's hard to use that as a reason for why we should continue a practice, especially a practice that conveys values, because we decided to come back to <laughs> this place, right? And so I don't know that we are necessarily a great example, representative sample of people who've been through the school process and what that actually means, because the vast majority of people do not come back to the school to teach. So I think that says something too. And then that's kind of a roundabout way to answer your question, but. Yeah, and it's interesting. So I think I mentioned that, you know, we're gonna talk about power next month and mm -hmm. as a theme, which is is kind of inherent in that quote, right? That, mm -hmm. that domination word. And so I'm wondering, to what extent do you think that schools do perpetuate a domination of some sense in terms of certain values, certain, certain ideas or certain perceptions, let's say, of how the world operates? I think schools very much perpetuate um, or a, a, a certain values that are dominant, right? Um, I think back, it's funny, like right now, not funny, it's interesting, but right now in my American Lit class, we are, um, we were studying a little bit about um, the Bureau of Indian Affairs and the residential schools that um, Native and Indigenous children were sent to um, with the explicit goal of removing them from their, divorcing them from their culture and um, making them um, I think the, I can't remember the exact line, but um, making them um, divorce them from their home life in order to make them basically more white. And I'm struck by the way that those, that those practices still exist in our schools today. Um, so I think, for example, and I've been doing a lot of studying on my own and work around anti-racism. And part of anti-racist work is to really look at what the dominant culture is. And in the society, because um, white um, men in particular have held power, um, there is a culture of whiteness that exists in schools. And one feature of white culture, for example, is um, competition, right? Um, and I think you can very much see that up and down all through K through 12, if not K through 16, pre-K through, you know, everywhere, that culture of competition, the sense of sort of like these, if you work hard, you will do well, that belief, um, the belief in the individual, right? Like, in, which I think is fine on one hand, but on the other hand, it ignores systemic problems in our schools and communities and really our country that very much have an impact on the individual. So I think those are some of the values. I think the, that belief in the individual is one that I think gets really, um, I see in schools a lot because teachers will say things like, you know, they attribute the, I guess, the difficulties or challenges that students might have to the individual student, you know, like, well, if they only did this or if their families only did this, rather than thinking bigger and thinking about the way the system has created a situation in which you are going to get the outcomes that you get. It's funny, I was reminded, I don't know if, if I read it as I was just looking at some of your work or if I was diving around in some other things, but I read a, just this interesting snippet of a story uh, way back when the white man was moving into Native American territories and they said, why don't you give us six of your, of your sons and we'll send him to this college and we'll educate them and then you can, or you can see what it's like to, to be a part of society and the the Indian chief said, no, we'd rather not do that, but why don't you give us six of your 
young men and we'll bring them into our culture and we'll educate them on everything that they need to know to be successful in society. And I think that it's a very, it, just a very interesting distinction, right? Or, or a comparison that so often we do only have this one lens. We do only see it through this one way. And so when, when that quote, coming back to that Bell Hook, Hooks quote, right? So that quote that says, you know, vigilant awareness. So how do we develop vigilant awareness in terms of looking at our practice and our interactions with kids, our interactions with systems, our interaction with different cultures. I mean, it's, it's gotta be almost something that becomes habitual, right? Something that we do almost without thinking, just like we see the world through a white lens or many people see the world through a white lens now without even thinking, right? So how do you develop that uh, sensitivity maybe is the right word, or you can give me another one, a better one maybe that, that allows us to see that world differently, see this world differently, just in, in a habitual way. I think it's hard. I think that the thing that will allow that for that vigilance is a lot of self-reflection on the part of a teacher. And constantly, I know in my own experiences, I have to constantly think about the ways in which everything that I do in a classroom communicates what I think is valuable, right? And so I have to ask myself, is, that, is there something inherently value, valuable about writing a sentence this way? Or is this because I was socialized to think this way, right? Is there something inherently valuable in adhering to strict deadlines because I might believe that kids have to learn this thing um, for one day and to, and to quote unquote prepare them for college? Or am I a product of that rigidness to some extent? Or can I see this through more flexible lens? I think the other way that teachers can think about that vigilance is to take any situation and to ask themselves, how might someone else see this situation, especially someone else who is from a um, non-dominant or marginalized perspective, right? I think a lot of my work has really been thinking about impact because I think we're speaking about socialization, we are socialized to think about our intent. We focus a lot on, well, I didn't mean to do that. Even when we're young children, we you know, teach kids to maybe apologize and then or one kid might say like, oh, I didn't mean to do it. Oh, I didn't know, I know you didn't mean to do it, but you just have to apologize or whatever it might be. And I think that we have to get away from that and, think, and focus less on the person who is doing something wrong or right and focus on what is the impact on someone. So I think when we're thinking about vigilance in a school, we can think about what does this look like? Just get into the habit of what does this situation look like? What does this practice look like from someone who is currently least successful in this context? What does that mean? I always think about how, um, I think I was, I was listening to another podcast, Seeing White, and one of the um, points that they made was that when we think about systems change, too often the people who are empowered to change systems those are those are at the top and they don't have the best view of how the system actually works they from their point of view the system looks great after all they're at the top right but if you really want to know and find out where the weak points are in your system you have to ask the people who are least successful in it or most marginalized because they will be able to tell you every single way that the system is wrong <laughs> and is working right. again i wonder almost the extent to which though when it comes to this conversation, right? That people even recognize the wrongness, if that's a word, the wrongness of the system in the context of marginalized populations and the, the ways that we talk about the world, the ways that we write about the world, all those types of things. So my, I guess my question would be, is there a, a school culture 
that has to be developed around those ideas that's kind of constantly talking about this stuff. I, I don't get the sense that you would say we learn to be vigilant and aware in a workshop, right? That it, it has to be something that is just a part of our DNA as a school. For sure. I think that. Well, I mean, <laughs> there's so many things to say about school culture, right? Because if you think about every single policy and practice that ha that occurs in school, again, it's con it conveys a value. So, are, for example, for teachers, to what extent do assessments of teachers actually look at the ways in which teachers are self-reflective about um, the system, right? Or about the ways in which they are um, building community or not building community. Like I, I just, I think we have systems in place that are so, that can be so punitive too. And when things are punitive, it is like one of the, it's like the worst condition for self-reflection because you're only thinking about what I can do or right or wrong so that I don't get in trouble with my supervisor. You can't do this work in, you can't learn this work in a workshop. That is true. And you won't be fixed in a workshop. There's no training that will fix people because it's an approach to life. And it's a, a lens that you carry everywhere, not just in school, but that you carry with you when you are looking at the media, when you are in your personal life. Um, it has to extend everywhere, right? What I will say, though, is I think that it's really critical to be in community with other people who can help support this kind of critical analysis of the system, if that makes sense. I think that often what happens is that because of the, again, because of the structure and the system of the school day, when you are isolated and you're like running from one class to another, you never get to speak to people, much less collaborate. You could just end up feeling like it's just you who thinks this. You just think that maybe I, you do a question, like maybe am I the person that, am I crazy? Does this, is this really happening? But once you are in groups and in conversation and you start to not reason away the things that you know, um, that you know in your gut feel wrong and you're able to talk and process and unpack it with someone else, I think that's when you start building a culture of that vigilance, of that, that community that's required to start to um, disrupt the system. Where do you start with that? I mean, is it just making space for that conversation to happen? Is it, is it just happening in staff rooms? Does it, does it have some organization to it? I mean, what does that look like, right? Because I keep thinking, you know, I keep thinking of my old school, which I think was, is very similar to your school, I think. It's primarily white, mostly upper middle class kids, or at least middle class kids who come from homes where there's a lot of privilege and, and opportunity. And I think that those expectations are just kind of built into that whole narrative that those kids come with, right? So it really requires some type of conversation or whatever work on the part of the teachers there to get past that, right? Because that's a very easy way of going through the school day of, of just kind of interacting with those kids. So how does it happen? I mean, are there starting points that you could suggest to schools? How is it happening in your school maybe? I don't want to say it starts with the leadership, but leadership definitely plays a role. And I think, again, the policies and practices we have as schools convey our values. Um, if it's important for students, for teachers to be able to collaborate and to be able to be a true part of the system where they can co-create, then administration would make time for that, right? And you, would, you wouldn't let technical things sort of get in the way of that. And I think that as a teacher, 
I'm very fortunate to have administration that is supportive of a lot of the equity work that we are doing that I'm very passionate about and for bringing together um, colleagues from across different buildings and making time um, during the school day, which is hard because we do get pulled out of classes, but making time for us to get together and to do that kind of meta analysis of how the system is working. And so what is it, can you get like specific about what that looks like? I mean, is that simply just interrogating practice at a very deep level or is it, well, what is it? Well, I think, well, part of it, so a lot of the work that we're doing right now, we are actually working with the Pacific Education Group. Um, they are Glenn, Signal, Glenn Singleton's group, um, courageous conversations about race. And the premise that they begin with is that um, anti-racist education and any kind of racial equity is only achievable if we first unpack ourselves, right? It starts with self. And so um, their protocol and um, their work really is about um, making sure that the in, uh, individuals are able to undo that socialization or at least see it like going back to bell hooks's quote right yeah. it starts there so it starts with some training with a facilitator but then after that when they leave because you know how people come and go in order for that for that to be sustained they have created time and space for us to be able to get together where we are able to actually practice the things that we are learning, that we are learning in our training, in conversation with one another, and then taking a look at developing questions, like almost like an inquiry, inquiry into where do we see then the racial inequities in our system? And I, again, I come back to that question of impact because um, in, I love this definition of races. It does, if something has to do with race uh, from um, Ijeoma Aluo's, um, so you want to talk about race. Because for me, it was very, it clarified things so easily for me. Um, so she asked the question, um, does this have to do with race? And she asked, the, and she answers that well. First, does it disproportionately or differently affect people of color? Is it part of a larger pattern that disproportionately or differently affect people of color? And then the last question, which is actually her first question, so I went backwards, is does a person of color says it, say it's about race? And so I think that's really, so I have really thought about that a lot. And Dr. Kendi, who is the head of the Anti-Racism Policy Center, I believe it's called, at American University, says the same thing, which is that we have to look at impact. And so when we get together in these groups, one of the things that we do is like, who are the kids who are being impacted in the system in a um, disproportionate or different way than quote unquote the vast majority. And what are the policies and practice that we have in place that have resulted in this impact? And really almost taking away the intention of people, right? Whatever it might be, or you know, that's the way we've always done it kind of reasoning and just say like, there's clearly a different impact here and therefore it needs to be addressed. So I think it's interesting too, because the, it's not the flip side, but the other piece of this conversation then is how do we make sure that the kids we are serving, the kids in our classrooms, are getting in a systemic way these types of conversations or being asked these types of questions to kind of reflect on their own biases, the, their own lenses. And so talk a little bit about what that looks like, not just in a classroom level, but I guess in a systems level, right? So it, just like literacy to me, literacy is not something that you teach just in English class, right? It should be taught cross-curricular in just about every setting and every opportunity that we have a chance to talk about that. We should, I'm assuming similar to this conversation. How does that happen in, in terms of making sure our kids are developing these types of 
lenses or at least interrogating their own lenses? And then how do we know that it's happened when our kids are, you know, walking down the aisle on graduation day that we're putting them out there in the world in ways that aren't perpetuating the problems that we already have? That's a really hard question. <laughs> um, how do we know? So I, we just, honestly, part of half of teaching is just hoping for the best. <laughs> but I think that, how do we do it on a systems level? I mean, I can say that, for one thing I can say is that it does have to start in, to some extent with individual teachers, right? And when I do this work in my classroom, and in fact, I was just speaking to a Spanish teacher today. We had a, a pep rally today and I was just talking to him. And we started talking about um, how do we get this work and conversations about injustice into our classrooms. So I was, I was actually talking to him about a poem that my kids were reading, Elizabeth Acevedo's Hair, which is what spurred the conversation because part of it is in Spanish and he's a Spanish teacher and I needed his translation. And when I told him how our conversation went in class, because we were talking about how something as simple as hair can be a way that people are discriminated against, right? In many different ways. And kids don't really think about that. And this is actually connected to our Native Indigenous unit because we had discussed how um, students, when they went to these Indian boarding schools, that their, their hair was cut off against their will, which I would see as assault, which is assault. Anyway, so we were talking and he was asking me, like, how do I have these conversations in my class? And he's asking how the kids are reacting. And his question was, do the kids ever ask, why are we talking about this? Right? And that is such a telling question if the kids are asking that question, because it means that for some reason they don't see this injustice as having, as having relevance to them. Right. And or that they don't see it as in re having relevance in that class. Like span. He's like, so his question was like, this is Spanish class, but we're, why are we talking about this thing? Right. And so I think as a system, what we can do and which I have done, and that's just a small example, is to work across disciplines and to talk about the kinds of conversations that we're having that have to do with, you know, equity and to be able to ask the kinds of questions that have to do with injustice across the board and to take a look at how it works in our own context. It's a, it's a, it works naturally in the humanities, I think. Um, math and science teachers, I think, find it more difficult. Although, it, although there is a long history of scientific racism, and we know that there's a long history of when we're talking about what is racism, if there's a disproportionate or different impact on students of color, we know that happens in math. And so that's a big question, right? So I think it's starting with those conversations across. And if we're asking like, what can districts do? I think it's, again, making the space to have those conversations across the board with teachers from different disciplines. Hey, I want to take a quick break from our conversation to let you know about what I think is the most powerful professional learning destination for educators online. And that is our Modern Learners Community Plus. You know, at a time when change is accelerating, when social media is getting increasingly toxic, and when we're faced with big questions in education that demand serious answers, MLC Plus offers a safe, respectful, intelligent space on the web to help you make sense of what to do next. MLC Plus is about community. We're building a movement to change the experience of schooling for kids around the world to better prepare them for the world today. Our community builds our collective and individual capacity to do that. 
MLC Plus is about challenge. Our carefully selected links and theme-driven conversations are meant to push your thinking, to get you to scrutinize your practice, and to catalyze your journey to reimagine education and schooling. But most of all, MLC Plus is about learning. Through our diverse book studies, our live coaching sessions with the Modern Learners team, our constant conference, our special workshops and masterclasses, your learning doesn't have to stop. And since all of our interactions are archived for later viewing, it's your learning on your schedule. So if you're looking for more quality conversations with a global lens, within a passionate community of educators, all in one respectful, easy to access, time-saving space, I'm telling you, it doesn't get any better than MLC+. Head on over to modernlearners.community right now, and let's change the story of education for the modern world together. And now, back to our conversation. So then the other thing you write a lot about is inclusive practices, which is a, a part of this conversation as well. And I think you define those as, I think the quote is, those that guarantee the perspectives and contributions of all people, especially of diverse backgrounds who have been traditionally marginalized, such as LGBTQ um, individuals, people with disabilities, people of color, that they're given equal recognition, attention, and care in all learning environments. So again, at some meta level within a school, that has to be a, a vision that we bring to that work, right? But at some practical level, that has to be the part of what we do. It's a part of just how we, you know, teach the things that, or, or bring different texts into the classroom. Um, you know, I was thinking, as you said, that, that example of, um, you know, having their hair cut off against their will, there was a a case of that actually a New Jersey wrestler and that obviously is probably something that is current that we can bring to that. So inclusive practices go across the curriculum, but again, how do we help teachers begin to bring those in who may not have that lens, right? Because I, I think some teachers probably asking too, why are we talking about this? Maybe not in those words, but they kind of look at these conversations and kind of go, well, you know, we don't really have to worry about that or that's not really our kids or whatever else. Well, to those teachers, I would ask them, I would flip the question around and say, why shouldn't we be talking about these things? Um, because isn't our goal to be able to make sure that all of our students have the opportunity to succeed? And that even if even one student in our school um, is not does not have the opportunities and access to work to their full potential, then that is an issue for all of us. And when we're talking about communities of care, it matters. It we need to create a culture where it matters. It matters what that I quote unquote am successful myself, but my success has to be in context and community with others. So that if there is someone else who is not able to have that same that level of success, that I have to ask like why. Right. And I have to start wondering about those things. So that's where I would sort of start with teachers. And I, I don't know. I think sometimes teachers and this goes again back to that critical self-reflection that teachers need to have for themselves. And this is why it starts personal, because I think the first thing that teachers will say is and I see this too, like, well, that doesn't have to do with me. Right. Or I know that my all my all my kids, I'm already doing this. All of my kids are great. They're doing well. They know how much I care about them. I have like 20 years of notes from kids and families and stuff. And that's all that can all be true. And it can also be true that there were kids that were also not served by you. Right. And how do we focus on, again, who we're not serving and ask ourselves why 
and ask ourselves not just why, because that's not enough, because why can turn into blaming, right? But what was my role and my participation and not being able to have that student succeed in the way that they could? And again, we can blame the system, right? We can say, well, because they couldn't, you know, the admin didn't do this or this other teacher didn't do that. Okay. Well, you as the teacher also had power here. So to what extent were you able to advocate, right? How were you able to um, speak on other kids' behalf? And again, that's real. I totally get the idea of that being really hard to do because, you know, I don't think I went to the restroom today until seventh period. <laughs> so right. I, I get the life of a teacher, but I also think that that's the system that we're up against. Things are so embedded, like you don't have to do anything. You can just do your job and the inequities will persist. Like you can just do your job and quote unquote, do it well and the inequities will, will persist. So you were channeling Peter Block, who was the first uh, interview that I did on this whole idea of community. Um, he wrote a book called Community and he said, you know, community, the way he defined it is, a place where our own success is dependent on the success yeah. of others. And mm -hmm. um, so that really resonates in that. But I guess it also depends on how you define success. Mm -hmm. So how would you define success when you say, you know, if I'm successful, then, you know, we want others to be successful as well. What does success look like? I think success looks like on an individual level to be able to really fulfill your potential. Right. I th and that's going to be different for every person. But I think success is, it's related to this idea of freedom, that I'm free to, and I don't mean free as in like rights per se, although that could be part of it, but, but that there aren't these um, obstacles that are socially constructed that are going to get in my way of achieving my full potential as like a human being. That's very abstract, I know, and but that's part of what I think about as an individual, like that I can, that I can succeed and not despite, but because the system helped to, you know, work that. But I, and that's hard because I think that there are many students in our school system who succeed and they define success as grades, getting into a good college, like monetary kind of things. No doubt. Yep. And I, and schools have a lot to do with that because of the whole way the system is set up and the, the way that kids are, socialized from very early in school. But yeah, I think that's, I think that's what success looks like to me on an individual basis. But because we're social animals and social beings, that success has to be in the context of others, right? Because you can't live in isolation either. So I think that, you know, it's the, um, all the boats lift up when the tide rises, all the boats lift, right? That has to be our like vision because your success may save my life one day. Like you may be the person who finds a cure for X, Y, or Z that I might have in 20 years. Or you might be the person who's going to be at a town council meeting and propose something that is going to change the life of my kids, right? So I think that we have to think in those kinds of, because we're all intertwined. There's a great essay that I share with students every year. It's called Willing to be Disturbed by Margaret Wheatley, right? Margaret you know? Wheatley, one of my favorite essays. Yes. Yeah. So we use that every year and that line in there about like, we don't have all the answers and that you're, and I have to be able to be curious about you. And I think part of that is like, I need you to also be successful because you might have an answer that I need. And you can only have, get to that answer if we make sure that the system around us allows you to fulfill your potential in the same way that it allows me to fulfill my potential. One of my favorite lines from that essay is actually that it's, uh, we have to spend more time not knowing. 
And, yeah. and I, I find that to be so resonant at this moment because yeah. there are so many things that just seem like they don't have answers. And if, you, if you're not comfortable with not knowing today, uh, you can drive yourself nuts. Right. Um, you can literally, you know, probably drive yourself to depression oh. and, and yes. whatever else. Well, and schools are part of the reason why. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, so that's the question, right? So how do we build kids capacity to not know? And I think today, you know, today happens to be a perfect day to talk about this, right? When we have millions of kids around the world who are, who are leaving school to go out and climate strike to protest, mm -hmm. um, you know, what's happening in the world environmentally. Actually, I saw another quote <laughs> that you had in a LitHub interview um, from a couple of days ago that I thought really resonates for this moment too, where you said, I believe the work teachers do is some of the most critical work we can do while they have yet to be truly a democratizing force. In fact, I'd argue that schools have done just as much to perpetuate and institutionalize societal inequities. I still believe that schools at their best can help change, not reflect society. In other words, schools are not just about preparing kids for the world, but preparing them to change it for the better. And today is just that writ large, right? And if, despite how depressing the climate conversation is, despite how, in, in how challenging the equity conversation is. If we don't be, if we're not okay with not knowing, and if we're not looking at our kids right now going, they can do amazing things and really making school the place that amplifies that, then I think we're kind of missing the boat on that, you know? Oh, sure. Because I think what we end up doing is just, um, replicating ourselves, right? Like right. if we don't, we just replicate the system. And I think we, I think kids so often know so much more than we give them credit for, you Absolutely. know? And, and that's why I think when I went back to, let's look at the people who, let's look at impact and focus on who is most impacted by the system. Um, if you want to know what's wrong, ask the people who are at the receiving end. Is that sort of, um, design thinking, right? right? You have to look at it from a user perspective. Have empathy, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so doing that with kids, I think is, and asking, because they will, again, kids will tell you everything that's wrong with school. Right. <laughs> like, and we, and I think what happens is, is, as a bias for teachers, we meet us through the system, we are very well intentioned about thinking that what we're doing is good for kids, but is we have to face the fact that maybe maybe it's not and that there couldn't there needs to be a radical shift in what our practices are do you think kids feel community at school i think some kids do in small niches i think i think they do i think the larger of course you know as the larger your your school gets the harder it is i think if a um i think a school with a strong mission with the right leadership can definitely instill a sense of community I think that the focus on competition works directly against community though. That's the issue. So in some ways, the more high achieving your school is, to some extent, it could be harder to have community in that way. Again, just thinking of those kids walking out today, they're probably finding community today um, yes. around something that they care about, around mm -hmm. something that they value. Um, mm -hmm. I actually had a chance, I went down to a little local climate strike today, <laughs> about 250 people and there were a whole bunch of kids there and I just started talking to them and, and they were really sincere about mm -hmm. they wanted to come because they are concerned. They are really frightened on some level, but feeling like people are not doing enough and that's community, right? That's, that's right. Really feeling, purpose. It's purpose and feeling connected to one another. And, and often that's difficult to do in schools. I, I just, as we kind of close this out, 
I get the sense, though, that in your classroom community is something that probably is happening at a, at a more effective level or at a greater level. Can you talk a little bit about how you might, how you go about just having kids connect around literature or writing and, and even kids who may not be, think of themselves as readers or writers? I, I mean, I've, I've had that experience, too, where kids kind of all of a sudden have an awakening sometimes when they read a particular text or um, they see, you know, something that someone else has written. How do we build community in just a classroom as a starting point? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think that um, one thing I want to say before I dive into my own classroom practices is that it should not depend on the teacher you get, the stroke of luck, whether or not you experience community in classroom, right? Like I just, you know, when you mentioned reading and writing and access to you know, access to different books or different types of writing experiences. And I have had kids who, you know, have come back and say, you know, this worked really well. And they, you know, I'm helping kids with their college essays right now. It needs to be shared. So I guess that's before I get to answering your question. Shared in the sense that like I, what I do in my classroom can't, you know, I can't close the door and then pretend that, you know, do my thing. That's great for the 25 kids in my room but it doesn't help the you know, thousands of kids who maybe are not sat in my room. So I'm constantly in community with like co-teachers, right? Other people who are, um, who are, with, who are working with me along, along my side. In terms of my classroom, however, yeah, I spend a lot of time in community. And I think one of the things that we need to remember as teachers is that community building isn't something that happens in the beginning of the year. And then you do these icebreakers and then now we're done, we've built community. <laughs> it has to be an ongoing um, effort and the vigilance um, that Bell Hooks describes is required to maintain that community because we know it can be, you know, one kid can say something and your icebreaker in September doesn't matter anymore. I mean, I think there's some simple things teachers can do. First, I know it's a simple thing, but I mean, just knowing two students' names and being able to pronounce them correctly, you would think that that's, of course you would do that. Everyone does it, but you would, maybe or maybe not be surprised by how many students have said that teachers have gotten their names wrong and they literally become a different name at school um, because it is too difficult to pronounce. And I'm just like, you, there's no community if that's, if that's how you start. Right. And making sure that the other students in the class can also pronounce it and, and having a shared understanding of why that's important. We do, we make our own sort of agreements, right? I love showing um, Clint Smith's TED Talk danger of silence at the beginning of the year because I love his four principles. Um, read critically, write consciously, speak clearly, and tell your truth because it's such a powerful um, example of care because he actually models what it's like to, his experience of what it's like to not stand up for someone else. He describes this in his talk and the consequences of that and his regrets and how he's gonna do things differently. So I think that serves as a model for kids. Um, and then I ask kids to think about what else would we include then, right? Like what else would we include in these agreements or if these were supposed to be our like guidelines for learning and they come up with great things, right? And then we, we, I post them and we talk th about them. They're simple things, right? And sometimes I think that high school teachers think that those are things that are done in elementary school and not really the rigorous enough, or I have to get through this chapter kind of attitude in high school, but they're so important when you are planning to tackle topics where kids will come in with vastly different opinions, especially topics that have to do with social injustice. So you have to constantly be building that. I think another thing that I do a lot in terms of reading and writing is that um, when we're writing, we're always sharing 
something small. So you're starting out um, sharing in low risk kind of ways and then building on that so that um, by the time we work into peer response groups for writing and some of my kids are writing very personal things because I give them a lot of free choice and um, I want them to be, I mean, they're experts on their lives. So we should allow them to write about their expertise instead of constantly asking them to write about things that are not their expertise. I mean, that's what we have college professors for, to write literary criticism, right? right? <laughs> like you should, they can definitely have an opinion and they should definitely, all the skills, but I just, again, going back to how do we build self-reflective adults? I think we can start with helping to build self-reflective adolescents or even just young people, children. And a lot of that can happen through writing. So I have a lot, I, one of my, I, I'm a writing workshop model and I didn't start out that way, but that's what I evolved to because I realized that that was the way that kids could take ownership over their own learning and writing and reading and they read what they need in order to write better and to get their voice out there. So then when they are able to share, I think personal experiences at the level that they are comfortable with, at the pace that they are comfortable, that inherently builds community because now I have to see you not just as the person who sits across from me in the class, but someone who this experience tapped into or someone who was also vulnerable in the class. And I do that as a classroom teacher. I constantly try to model that kind of vulnerability or that kind of like my own sense of um, learning, right? Like when I didn't know something, I will tell them like, you know, I didn't know this. And, you know, I've been alive for this many years. And it's only recently that I've been, you know, awakened to these things so that you can see that the learning is constant. So I think ways to break down every way that we can break down that competition that exists outside of my classroom, I think is really, really helpful and um, can go a long way towards, um, again, building that community so that kids feel, do feel that when, that one student's success is also theirs in a way, right? So I just love when, um, I love when students, when they'll share with me that, you know, some student achieved something or was successful in something and they were all invested in it and somehow like they gave him advice or they gave him feedback and then they thought it went really, whether it's like on a small paper or whatever it is. And they feel like I had a part in helping so-and-so's paper or so-and-so's letter to so-and-so or whatever it might be, I had a part in that and that feels good. Well, Trisha, thanks so much for this conversation and for pushing our thinking and just talking and writing about these things that are really important. Uh, They've always been important. They feel even more important now and they're hard conversations to have. There are no easy answers to a lot of these things, but really appreciate you and and others who are uh, taking the lead on at least engaging in these conversations and and helping us understand a little bit more about community in schools and and the relationships that we need to have with kids. So thanks so much. Um, Thank you all. I really appreciate it. So what can you do now after listening to Trisha's ideas about developing a culture of community? Well, I've got three suggestions for you. First, if you're on Twitter, or even if you're not, check out the hashtag DisruptTexts as one entry point into a larger conversation about these topics. You'll find some great examples of how teachers are changing practice to embrace more inclusion and diversity. Second, reflect on your own experiences as a student and as a person in whatever culture and society you're a part of right now. What biases might you be using as lenses that might require a rethink? And finally, if you need to, and finally, if you need to, 
Why not bring some new voices into your social media streams? I've collected a list of a dozen or so, and I've added them to the show notes in our Modern Learners community under the podcast topic. Now, next week, I start diving into the theme of power in schools, and I talk with Robert Fried, the author of The Game of School and editor of The Skeptical Visionary, a Seymour Saracen educational reader, which is one of my most important books. I am really looking forward to that conversation. But until then, cheers, everyone, and thanks so much for listening.